Stand to Reasons, hashtag SDRask Podcast. I'm Amy Hall, and with me is Greg Kokel, and we are here to answer your questions. We are. So this first question comes from Brad from Australia. I've tried explaining God's omnipresence to my six-year-old daughter. Now she says things like, God's in that wall and God's in this apple. Do you have some suggestions to explain omnipresence to a child in a way that will give her a deeper understanding? Yeah, I think there's an easy way to do that. And uh, when we say that God is omnipresent, we don't mean that he's in everything, but that he is present everywhere. So we are here in this room. We are not in the wall, in the door, or the microphone. We are just here. Now, we can go out of the door, out of the studio, and go be here in the office, and there's a sense in which we are there in the whole office. We are, we are consciously present in the entire room that we're in, kind of thing. That room is bigger than the room we're in now. It's a little bitty studio. And uh, nevertheless, we are fully present in that whole room. We are aware of all that's going on there, and our presence, in a certain sense, fills the room. God's presence, in that sense, fills everything. He is there everywhere. He is not in everything. He is not the same as the wall. So I, I would say to my daughter, or Brad can say to his daughter, honey, um, uh, I didn't explain it quite as clearly as they could. I didn't mean that God was in everything as a part of everything, but he was present everywhere. So God is here. If we go in the other room, God would be there too. If we go in, in onto the moon, God would be there. If we went um, into the grave, Sheol, God would be there. I think that's the language one of the Psalms uses. No matter where I go, there you are. So God is aware. He is here with us no matter where we're at. He knows everything that we do. Consequently, he, we'd never get away with anything. He knows everything we do. There's actually a Latin phrase called quorum, C-O-R-A-M, Deo, D-E-O. That means before the Lord or something to that effect. I have it by my desk because it's a reminder to me that I'm living my life before God. Wherever I'm at, I am before God. And, uh, and that's a good thing to know for two reasons. One, uh, that um, the things that we do that are not appropriate, we are doing them before God in the presence of God. But also the things that we go through that are hard, we are going through them in the presence of God. So there are two things that are applic uh, applications to this concept of God's uh, omnipresence properly understood that will will are good for kids to understand. I don't know that I would be so concerned about doing bad things if I thought that God was in the door, part of the door kind of thing. But the fact that God is personally present with us is uh is has a salutary effect in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I that's a great answer. I don't even have anything to add to that, Greg. So let's go to a question from Alice. Next. 
Greg said that the definition of male and female is rooted in biology in the April 14th podcast. I agree, but given that definition, how does it make sense for God to identify as male? Well, um, it's clearly not biology. And he doesn't identify as male. He identifies as father. Although there are a number of characterizations of of God in Scripture where uh, clearly a feminine... a, a feminine figure of speech is um, is at play in play. So Psalm ninety one uh, says something like, "He uh, gathers us. Uh, we're, we're under his pinions. His pinions are feathers." So the picture there, and I actually pray this about my family. I want to God spread His pinions over our family. This is like a a mother hen uh, covering her brood with her wings in order to protect them. And so uh, there are a number of other places where we have uh, feminine characteristics that are ascribed to God. So God is not a male or a female, but the chief way he characterizes himself to us is as a father. And um, now some people are uncomfortable with that in modern days, more progressive types, and they want to say he, she, it, and mother God and all that. Well, what they are doing is describing God in a way that God does not describe himself. Oh, by the way, it just occurred to me, especially, <laughs> well, let me put it this way, they are misgendering God, right? So why don't we let God be what he wants? But to answer the question, uh, obviously. He is not a male or a female, but a father is a kind of a figure. And um, some people talk about father figures that are not their father. Okay. And so fathers play a particular kind of a role in the world. And that's the way God ascribes himself. He's not male, he's not female, but there is a father, and then there is one who is described as his son. So there are ways of describing this relationship that God uses that are important, even though he is not male biologically or female biologically. Yeah, I. the definition of man and woman is rooted in biology, but those are obviously, God is not a man, he's not a woman, he's not a human being. And I think... I think what might be behind this question is the idea that, uh, well, we can feel male or we can feel female, but when we're talking about physical bodies that are created in a certain way for a certain purpose, we're talking about objective biology in that case. Mm -hmm. So uh, I like what you said, Greg. I, I think the idea that he's a father is what he's after here rather than I'm a man, because mm-hmm. he certainly says I'm not a man. Right. Numbers. Um, he's not a human being. But as human beings, we are physical embodied creatures. And so it's a completely different category right. from who God is. Um, I th- you made a comment about feeling male and female that people report. Um I'm not even sure that's a coherent comment, though, and this is what, or like I feel like a woman, mm-hmm. because Matt Walsh will ask, and it's very valid, okay, what is a woman that you feel like a woman? Well, a woman, well, it's hard to describe. It's it's actually never been hard to describe until now. 
a woman has always been a member of the human species that has the native natural capability, even if it's not functioning at that moment or used to function, it doesn't anymore, or is not yet able to function or whatever, it still has the natural native capability of producing children. And uh, that requires a, a man <laughs> to do that. And the two together can be fruitful and multiply. All right. So um, when people say, well, I feel like a woman in a man's body, well, what is a woman that you feel like it? There's, there's no other way to characterize it than the way we just did in terms of biological terms. And there are feelings that go with being a woman, but they are tied to this biological reality. And so the only way to say I feel like a woman in a way that makes sense is to say I feel like I have a vagina and a uterus and I have breasts that can um, lactate and, and I can bear children. But of course, the minute you say that, which is, it seems to me, the only way to characterize uh, an answer that that makes any sense, it's clear how how wrong that is. So you feel like you have a uterus, but you don't. You feel like you have ovaries, but you don't. You feel like you can lactate, but you don't. You know, that you know, So that seems like a real problem, but they don't want to say that. But then it, it's hard to know what exactly they are talking about. It's easy for us to just kind of accept that our culture has that language, but it, but I think that, and this is the way I position my response in Street Smarts in that section, that last chapter that deals with some of these issues, in the dialogue there with that question that Matt Walsh asks. And he's kind of famous for that question. In fact, I think he wrote a book called What, what is a Woman, or somebody did by that title. I'm not, he did a documentary. I'm not sure. About okay, book, maybe but... that's it. Maybe the documentary. But because it's such a an appropriate question, and it is meant to demonstrate that 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 these kinds of claims are at the bottom incoherent, and uh, and I don't mean to be dismissive. I'm just saying that these kinds of claims are things people make that show that something is wrong. Something is really wrong. Incidentally. That's what transgenders acknowledge. When a person says, I'm a woman in a man's body, they say that I am psychologically one way, whatever that actually is, and I am physically another way. There's a mismatch. That's a brokenness. That's a, that something's amiss, which is why they want to, to, um, uh, to dress differently or have operations or whatever, transition. It's because they want to make their body look more like what their mind feels. But it's interesting. What they're trying to do is make their body look like a woman. Because that's what a woman is. I never thought of this particular point before. But because they intuitively know that's what a woman is, is someone who has a body in this way. Well, I feel like I have a body in this way, but I don't have a body in this way. So I'm going to surgically make my body look that way. Well, obviously, that's a broken person. Mm-hmm. Okay, Greg, let's take a uh, question from Steve. The sinner's prayer often gets critiqued, probably for good reason, but the thief on the cross is thought to be with Jesus in his kingdom. So my question is, what is it in, quote, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, end quote, in Luke twenty three forty two, that triggers his entry to the kingdom? Well, it's it's obviously this individual doesn't, have a lot of theology. 
but he is aware of what uh, Jesus has been doing for the last three and a half years, and the reason is pretty much everybody is aware of it. As uh, Peter, rather Paul, says later on in the book of Acts, these things have not happened in a corner. He says to Agrippa, I think, you know this, you know the prophets, and what I'm talking about have not happened in a corner. This is a big deal. And on the road to Emmaus in the end of Luke, um, as there's lament there on that Easter morning by these disciples, as they're talking to Jesus without knowing that it's Jesus, they are saying, "Here, what's going on? Are you the only one in town that doesn't realize what's taken place? So these things, are, this is public. Um, the, a lot of this information, and certainly this thief, is aware of some of this. It's interesting in the Passion accounts, it does say that the thieves on the cross, those on the cross, are mocking him, both of them. It's plural. But at some point, one apparently relents. They were on the cross for a long time, okay? Um, I mean, Jesus was on the cross with the thieves for at least three hours, maybe more. But it was three hours that darkness covered the cross, um, that covered Calvary. So um, there is a growing awareness by one of them, that this this person is unjustly punished, and he is the one who he claims to be. And so he says, in a certain sense, in the parlance of that period and moment, he uses language that reflects his trust in Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is, you are the king of the kingdom. So that is an acknowledgement of Jesus. And uh, it's not the sinner's prayer as we normally pray it. And I, this is part of the reason why I, I think the sinner's prayer is useful, but it's not all-encompassing. There are different ways that people, um, that, that people respond to the truth in a salvific way. You know, C.S. Lewis never prayed a sinner's prayer. I'm reading his biography right now, and anybody who's know anything about it knows that when he became to, he came to when he was converted, it was during a, a, a trip to the zoo. He climbs into the sidecar of a motorcycle. His brother Warney is driving. They drive to the zoo. Lewis says, "When I, when I got into the sidecar, we started the journey. I wasn't a Christian. When we arrived back home from the trip, I was a Christian." There was a confidence or a belief in his heart that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and what whatever details that entailed. Okay, now, um, so so I, I think this shows demonstrates a little bit of flexibility in the ways people trust Jesus for who he is and who he claimed to be. Mm-hmm. That triggers their regeneration, and it's not necessary necessarily this kind of cookie-cutter cutter prayer. Uh, I don't like the prayer sometimes the way it's often given because it entails language people don't even really understand. And um, this week, this last weekend at um, Reality, I closed the session, and I just made it clear, you know, what was at stake to the students that if they came there and they weren't followers of Jesus, then they discovered something that maybe they never expected to see. I wanted them to know they weren't there by accident and and to address the guilt in their own lives that they know they have. Because one day they're going to stand before Jesus and either perfect justice or perfect mercy is going to happen. That's punishment for everything they've ever done wrong and God misses nothing. Or forgiveness 
for everything they've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. And I told, and I said, I suggest you don't waste any time. You turn from your old life and follow Jesus. You beat your breast and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's right out of the uh, New Testament, the Gospels, and 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 then follow Him. So you know there there is kind of an altar call of sorts. Uh, it may not be classic, a chick track for spiritual laws, steps to peace with God, whatever, sinner's prayer. But the details are there for somebody to respond to if the Spirit is working in their life in that regard. Um, there are different things that people have responded to over time. And uh, they'll give their testimonies, and it's clear they've then regenerated. But they, they, you know, it's not always this, this filling, fulfilling this paradigm of salvation prayer. And I think that's certainly the case with the uh with the thief on the cross. Right. I, I yeah, I, I agree with you. He's he's expressing trust in Jesus. We don't know everything in his heart that he believed, but clearly by saying, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, he he thinks Jesus is the Messiah. He thinks he's the king. He thinks he's the ability to bring him there. Yeah. And I think even implied in there is belief that he's been forgiven because clearly he's guilty. Mm-hmm. So he knows that also. So he thinks somehow Jesus can make him right and bring him into his kingdom. And I think that is all the elements we have of trusting in Jesus for our salvation. Mm -hmm. And again, we don't know even what was in his heart or how much he knew or what he knew from other things. But just from that, I think we can see that that he trusted in him. And salvation is about trusting Christ and being united to Christ. Mm -hmm. It's not about saying specific magic words that will get us right. a certain thing. Yeah. So I uh, yeah. All right, Greg, let's squeeze one more in here. All right. <laughs> this that was one Steve. This one comes from Gary Heinz. Gary. What's a good program to teach logic to high school students with a Christian flavor? Gary from Oceanside. You know, I don't know. Well, first of all, logic doesn't need to have a Christian flavor, first of all, because um, it is not, there is no, um, what's the right way of putting it? There's no necessary connection between Christian beliefs and logic. Now, I think there is a metaphysical connection to the way the world is that that has things like the laws of logic and their grounding, which comes in a, a, a God who manifests those things, okay? But that's a separate issue. You can learn about informal fallacies like uh, the genetic fallacy or circular reasoning or um, straw man or uh, something like that by just by or name calling um, ad hominem. You can learn that those are not sound ways to address an argument, even if you're not a Christian. And I wish more and more people would do that because it would make them easier, easier for them to see the truth of Christianity and not buy into these kind of foolish ways that they've adopted to reject it, um, that are victimized by those informal fallacies. So I don't know that it, you have to have a book like that. We we sell a book, or used to, called the uh, Argument Rulebook, or Rulebook rule book for, for Arguments, arguments. Yeah. yeah, which is a secular book. It's not done by Christians. In fact, there are... St- I've read some, and maybe even in that one, where they use examples of bad religious arguments, you know, and nothing wrong with that if the religious arguments that they are critiquing are indeed bad arguments. Um, if I were teaching this, what 
because I'd be teaching two Christians principally um, to equip them to think better and manage uh, defense of the faith more effectively. I'd want to give them examples of, of, of fallacies, informal fallacies, if that's what I was focusing in on, that people use against Christianity. Uh, like, for example, well, with regards to the abortion question, well, you're a man. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't have anything to say about this because you can't bear children. Well, I have a little dialogue coming up in Street Smarts on that very issue. And this is an example of the genetic fallacy. Just because a, a man, just because the complaint or the argument or the issue comes forth from has the genesis in a male doesn't mean that the point itself isn't legitimate with regards to the moral question of abortion. Okay. Um, that's like if somebody was complaining that I was abusing my wife. I said, are you married to her? No. Well, then shut up. I'm the one who's married to her. You're not. So you don't have anything to say about how I treat my wife. Okay. I mean, that's very obviously a bad way of thinking, a bad line of argument. Same fallacy, though, genetic fallacy. So I think you can teach that without having to appeal uh, to, to have kind of a Christian foundation to logic. But uh, I think it is helpful to use illustrations of problems that um, are are used against Christianity, because that's a second level of training that you're giving to young mm-hmm. people. Now, there is a book that I have, and it's made for kids, called The Fallacy Detective. It's got like a, you know, a hound dog on the front, a cartoon thing. And the same author wrote another book about critical thinking and whatever. I don't know if that's actually a, a Christian or not, but I, I know that homeschoolers use it. So I'm sure it's Christian friendly. But even a book that is not Christian friendly, um, and in other words, they will use the illustrations of their teaching to against some kind of religious concepts. Those are still can be good instruction booklets if they're playing fair and square mm-hmm. with the uh, with 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 the rational rules, so to speak. So I would start with that book, The Fallacy Detective, and then you can get that on Amazon and then also look for the other book by the same author. Do you think that would be too young for high school students, though? No. <laughs> today, okay. nowadays, maybe 300 years ago or 200 years ago or 100 years ago, but not today. And anyway, it's not even too young for adults. If if they are taking these concepts and throwing the ball so that middle schoolers or grade schoolers can catch it, an adult's going to catch it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be easy for them to understand. And the easier it is for even an adult to understand, the better heuristics or pedagogy or whatever you want to call it there is. They're going to learn it more effectively. And I'm just going to throw out a couple more suggestions because once you learn the basics there, if you want to see how those play out, then I would recommend tactics because you, in tactics, even though you don't necessarily set out to to explain every single fallacy, as you're teaching people how to think, you're using logic, you're teaching people right. how to use logic well. It's in play. It kind right. of rubs off. Yeah. And another one that does something similar is called the unaborted Socrates. Oh, yeah. And that one's about the pro-life. pro-life yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's all these dialogues between, they're, they're kind of, you know, Socratic type dialogues. Right. Peter Kraft is the author. Yes. You know. And so that one, I think, would be another one you could read to see how this plays out. Yeah, right. All right. That's it, Greg. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Thank you for listening. If you have a question, send it on Twitter with the hashtag STRask or go through our website. Just find our podcast page for hashtag STRask 
and follow the link there and send us a question. Just make sure it's short, about you know two sentences. Don't really go over that if you can help it. So it's tweet sized, and then we will consider your question. All right, thanks for listening. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Yeah.